Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite, well, everything at this point. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Joe Perez, one of several lower-focused folks uh, over at Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Uh, it's weird. Um, I was up all night working on something, and I was trying to come up with a list of influences, like media that reminded me of the thing I was working on, and that got me. It took me down the rabbit hole of of what indicates an influence like when is it you know when is it an influence versus when is it just something that's kind of like the thing you're talking about uh, that is an interesting distinction yeah um and and one of the things is like i was thinking about misfits of science remember misfits of science i do actually yeah um courtney cox's first real tv show mm-hmm. um, her, certainly not her most successful one but uh, i was thinking about that because it's like Misfits of Science is strangely influential if you look around all the stuff that was very clearly influenced by it. Like um, Heroes. Yes. Heroes was, Heroes was influenced by Misfits of Science. For one thing, one of the major writers on Misfits of Science created Heroes. Did you know that? I actually don't think I did. Yeah. One of the main writers on, on uh, Misfits of Science was the guy that created Heroes. Uh, so, and I just found this out last night. So, yeah, that's, it's, we, I don't have a, like, we don't have a show of this to talk about. I just, it's something that hit me last night and I was thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You, you talk about that cause I have a similar thought and then we'll move on to our normal stuff. Um, but over the last couple of days I've been uh, kind of laid up uh, with a, an injured leg. So I haven't really been doing a whole lot of anything. So I've been going through uh, the story releases for magic, the gathering because they do this thing wherever they're about to release a new set they do a whole bunch of story blurbs and side stories and like, and they do them in short story. They're, they're fully realized. Um, and there is actually like an arc in things that happen before the set releases or that's uh, set in motion throughout the, the set. And I was doing the same thing. I was like, you know, looking for the influences that harken back to other media, like, okay, this reminds me of this show and this reminds me of that show, or this reminds me of this book. Yeah, um, when is it a reference versus what, when is it an influence? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was thinking about that same thing. So it's it's kind of interesting to bring that up. Uh, we will at some point probably talk about Dominaria, uh, not this show, but in the future, because I find it fascinating. Uh, and I know several of you out there have made comments about that as well. Yeah, but, the lore of Magic the Gathering is fascinating to me. The card play is not something I'm interested in, but the lore is interesting. Especially with the crossovers in the D&D now, where they're they're actually making those those worlds available. But we're not here to talk about that and today. We do actually have a couple things that we are going to talk about. But if you have a question or a theme idea or something you want us to cover topic-wise for this show or any of our other podcasts, you can go ahead and send them into podcasts at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, you can go ahead and head over to our Discord server. We have a channel set aside for patron supporters. Uh, it's the patron Q and podcast questions. Uh, we tend to look there first before anywhere else as a way of saying thank you to our Patreon supporters uh, for allowing us to keep the lights on and do shows like this. Uh, and if you can't support us and email is not your thing, again, we understand. Uh, we do have one in our Discord server set aside for just podcasting Q questions. You can drop them there and we do look there for for multiple questions or topic ideas and some of our past ones have actually come from there but today we're going to start with well one is something we normally don't do and and matt brought this up earlier um it's sort of a lower news thing uh so with the alpha for dragonflight in full swing and us coming up rapidly towards the end of the year and when the uh proposed release date of the next expansion is things are starting to swirl as to questions of how the story is going to go. Uh, and we generally don't get a whole lot of tidbits, 
but we did actually. Steve Denauser, uh, the narrative lead, who has guested on our podcast, uh, all around decent folk, uh, has actually made a blue post commenting on particularly where things are going to kind of be starting from. Uh, so, Matt, you brought this to my attention. What are what are some of the big points in this post? I'm not going to read the whole thing to you folks at home. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fairly long post from Steve. Uh, my thoughts on it was the interesting thing about it was the idea of wanting to let the story have a moment. Uh, one of the points Steve made was that if you actually look at the events of World of Warcraft, between every year and every other year since World of Warcraft launch, there's, there's never not been a world-ending crisis. Mm-hmm. Like there's been no time to like if you were if you were a character who's been playing this game since 2004 when you started your first character if that character is still playing if you go back and look at the last two decades of their life they've the grass has never gotten a chance to get any you know do anything under their feet because they're never anywhere long enough to even like take a minute to breathe it's just continuous oh okay uh fire crazy fire lord about to destroy everything gotta stop him oh crazy dragon gotta gotta stop him oh oh no old gods oh 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 no that's bad gotta stop that oh hey uh naxxramas is in the plague lands gotta stop that oh okay break time oh oh wait no the demons have reopened the dark portal so i gotta go through that um so yeah it's it just never stops (laughs) Like, like every time you think, whew, okay, we've we've stopped Kill Jaden from, from destroying the Sunwell. Now I'm sure it's time for to oh oh played green boxes. Are you are you for real? Are you for real? I was just about to take this drink. I was about to drink something. And it just keeps going. So one of the things they wanted to do when they uh moved from Shadowlands to Dragonflight was to establish, okay, Shadowlands took place over the course of a couple of years. Yeah, a hard commitment at the time, which we haven't really seen them do before. Yeah, they, they had not been particularly saying how long it took or anything. Steve himself even makes that point that they usually don't say in-game how long these things took. Um, they just kind of leave it, it nebulous in the game. They have a they have a timeline, but they don't bother to... like Because people don't generally go, wow, it's been two years since X happened. Unless you, know, you happen to be us and we you know bombard you because you're on our show and we yeah, pinpoint exactly. you about, hey, what's, what's time? Yeah, what is time? Baby, explain it. Explain <laughs> it some more. Anyway, um, so the, the the really interesting thing about this is that, that by doing that, by saying that the events of Shadowlands took two years, and it's been three years since then, from the beginning of Shadowlands to the beginning of Dragonflight is a five-year period. And three of those years were relatively peaceful, which it may sound odd to us because we're used to that never being the case. But you got to think the people of, of, of Azeroth were like, Oh, thankful. Oh, man. After that Legion invasion, I thought for sure we were doomed. And then the sky ripped open. But hey, it's okay now. It's okay now. And they got to, like, you know, live. And and I thought that was an interesting point. Uh, The other interesting point was that we're not going to come back to an Azeroth with, like, Gilneas already resettled. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It's they're not having that stuff happen off screen. If it, if it happens, it'll happen in the game when we're playing it. Uh, and I think that's an interesting decision. And I think to a certain degree, it's a good decision. And they're not going to have like a series of novels happening in that three year gap to explain to us what happened during it, because people who play the game want to see that stuff in game. Yes. They don't want there to be multiple tie in books. Uh, so they're going to do that. I think these are good decisions. I think it is a good decision to have a three-year period where nothing you know, major it, happens or, you know, I'm sure stuff happened. 
You know, I'm I'm sure like you know some some warlord somewhere got his you know his, his feathers up uprooted and they had to go kick his butt or whatever you. But I like the idea that during this three year period, it'd be like that period in a D and D game where people create their first first level characters. Mm-hmm. And yeah, stuff's happening in the world, but for you, it's all down to, hey, kobolds are attacking. And I kind of like that idea of this. the last three years have been a period where people could actually focus on, oops, kobolds, instead of, oops, you know, armies of the undead coming to kill us. What really struck me about this, too, is um, not only that the sort of, I I don't want to say the hard commitment to a timeline, because I I don't want to say it was a hard commitment, but the commitment to actually saying, here's where we're starting, here's how much time has passed as a really cool thing, especially for people that are our peers. And there's still a lot of role players in WoW or people that maybe don't role play anymore, but do write uh, stories revolving around their characters uh, that, you know, have been doing so for years. And the interesting thing is that giving us a definitive time frame between events saying Shadowlands ended uh, in year 37, dragon flights taking place in year 40, or at least starting in year 40, that gives you a definite three-year time frame. And so for players like, you know, myself, I used to keep a roving journal of my main character's story and exploits between expansions or between like major content updates. Uh, like what was downtime? Like what would what would I be doing during this time frame? And but it was always nebulous. It was always left up to to us sort of like what that time was and how much time really passed before it. And while there's still an element of that, which I appreciate uh, because it gives you that wiggle room of like, they're not saying that it's going to be act like this amount of time between updates as, as past, or, you know, now we are in this year or whatever the case is. Um, but knowing how much time you have to play with between the end of one expansion and the beginning of another, it's nice. It's a nice little thing, especially when they, he makes a post to like this talking about, yes, your characters would go back to their lives and, you know, you're already adults technically at this point or possibly and what yeah, your characters would playing, do, yeah, right? If you're playing an adult character, three years is not so much that you look radically different. Right. Um, I mean, uh, from speaking for myself, sometimes it is. <laughs> sometimes you do look radically different in three years. It depends on how hard the three years is. Something, something, but, and doing something, something. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I do actually think one of the things I really like about this is what it reminds me of the most, though. Uh, it reminds me a lot of four years have passed since the burning legion, you know, mm-hmm. so on, you know, it's, it's just got that. It's a, it's a nice, it's a solid number. It's been a certain amount of years. Stuff has happened in the meantime, and we'll get to see it when we start playing it. You know what I mean? I, I, I just enjoy that. I think it's a, it's a nice approach to it. Yeah. I, I think it, it really is uh, a nice approach. I would agree with that. So Steve, if you're listening, thank you very much for, for that post. Uh, I encourage everybody to go and read the full breadth of it. It is a wonderfully insightful and well-written post. Um, while there may not be a lot of things in there for the, us to speculate about, I thought it was important from a narrative uh, space, and Matt absolutely thought it was important from a narrative space uh, for us to bring up. And well, I wholeheartedly yeah, I mean, agree. Yeah, I, one of the things we don't really do here because you know it's just not something we do is give you lore news. You know, because by its nature, it's the kind of stuff we like to go into more detail on and speculate about and think about and play whack-a-mole with. But in this case, it just felt like this is something a lot of people will want to know. And there's nothing stopping us from telling you about it. I mean, it just feels like it works. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And we're going to move on uh, on from that uh, since there's not a whole lot more for us to speculate or comment on there. 
Uh, and we're going to move on to a topic that was actually started as a question from Tetsemi uh, that was a little more specific and poignant, but got me thinking about a broader spectrum of things. I'll read the question and then uh, I'll go into what it sort of evolved into over the course of the last couple of days of of thinking about this. Uh, so old gods, old gods, this old gods, that what about new gods? Uh, where's the young brash upstart that decides in their time to take a seat in the pantheon? If you were to add to the Warcraft lore, who would you like to see elevated to godhood? How would they get there? And who's the arch enemy they acquired along the way for this ascension? Uh, and then a caveat here, godhood defined as you will could be along the side. Titan watchers could be a Titan, could be Alaria becoming a void Lord kind of go crazy with this. So that was really what, what spawned the thought is divinity is a very odd topic in a lot of media. There are mm -hmm. different rules or different takes on it, regardless of like what you're doing. So like, if you're talking about comic books, gods are assumed differently there. Sometimes even inside of their own pages, the multiple, multiple different things are considered gods, tabletop RPGs across all of the different systems and lores and, and, and uh, story shells that are out there all view them differently depending on what your specific origin is, TV shows, movies, even folklore, uh, in myths and legends, if you go across the world, deals with gods in very different ways and how somebody could be raised to godhood or even if that is a possibility. Matt, do you have any specific thoughts where you want to start with this one? Well, I'm going to take it back to Warcraft for a second just because um, it was originally asked as a Warcraft question. Uh, one thing, we've actually kind of seen a sort of ascension into pseudo-godhood in Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. uh, Vol'jin effectively becomes the Loa of Kings. Yep. He assumes that mantle. I don't know if that means he becomes the the uh, Loa that um, Princess... Uh, Talanji. Thank you, Talandra. I was going to call her Talandra, and I know it's not Talandra. Um, it's I don't know if if he becomes you know if if she stays with bound to Bwansamdi, or if Vol'jin takes over the role. Um, but he's now he has Razan's position. He is essentially Razan's reincarnation, and he's tied to Razan in a way where like the stuff that he does is is part of that Loa. So we've seen that that can happen at least to that level. Um, you could argue that what Arthas was, was almost a God mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, as Lich King. He, you know, enormously powerful, uh, certainly powerful enough to bulk the jailer who, and we saw Pelagos become the arbiter. Essentially Pelagos has taken over the jailer's original function. He, if, if not a God, certainly close enough to a Titan. Uh, so there's, there's interesting things like that. We've not, we still don't quite know what a loon is. We know that a loon is something. Oh, we know a loon's an arrow. And wrote a post about that a years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at any rate, we, we know that Alun has, there's a relationship with the winter queen, but we don't know what it is. We don't know how closely related they are. We don't know if Alun is essentially the same kind of thing that the uh, eternal ones are. And we don't really know what the eternal ones are or what the first ones are. Mm -hmm. So the nature of these beings is nebulous. Uh, the old gods, we call them the old gods, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're gods. And that's, you know, there's just a ton of, nebulousness to this part of the problem and part of the interesting thing about it is we call Aluna God because she gets worshiped and she does things that doesn't, you know, is that what it takes to be a God? Like what, what is the difference between say um, like a, a dragon aspect and a God? Like mm -hmm. is, you know, can you, can you pray hard enough to a dragon aspect and get what you want? There's just a lot to it. Um, 
I was thinking, here's an example of something that I've always found interesting. Uh, we're going to switch gears to a comic book for a second, then I'll let Joe talk. One of my favorite characters is Superman. I've never made any bones about that. I love the character. I love the mythology. I love the basic. The thing that a lot of people don't like about him is the Boy Scoutedness, but also the power. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard for some people to wrap their heads around the idea that Superman could even be beaten in a fight, that, that there's any danger to him in what he does. And I will point out that every single character in a comic book is invulnerable until the writer decides to like do a special episode where they're not. Uh, Batman is not going to get shot by a guy with a zip gun unless they write and they decide that that would be a good story. So all characters are equally omnipotent and immune. It doesn't matter if they have cosmos shaking power or, you know, punch muggers. So that, that's not a problem for me. But one of the things I always found interesting about the character is that you, you could call Superman a God, but he's, he's shown many times to not be one that he has emotions that he's fallible. And now you say the Greek gods are like that too, but I'm getting there. Uh, moreover that he can't, there's, there's no, there's none of the braggadocio and there's none of the, you know, omnipotence. There are limits to Superman. There are things he can't do. Um, he couldn't like save his planet. He couldn't, he was a baby, but you know, he can't fix the battle bottle city of Kandor. He can't do these things. He couldn't stop his foster father from dying, you know? And they always put the, when they put the character up against an actual God, a lot of times Superman will beat that character. Superman mm-hmm. has physically beaten Darkseid up, but there's no no mistaking that Darkseid is an actual god and is significantly more powerful than Superman is. Significantly. He can do things that Superman couldn't even dream about doing. And that's that's it, that's not a problem for the character. And I don't think it's a it is an interesting thing to consider. Um like in Marvel there are more characters who are actual who are called gods or who actually are gods in some way or form. Um in the movies, he's an alien, but in the comics, Thor is literally Thor. The character Thor that you see yep. in the comic books is Thor, the, the mythological figure. That's his life story. There are a few things that are different, but generally speaking, if you read a Norse myth, that Norse myth actually happened to the comic book guy you, you're seeing right there. You know, that's that's the same guy. And that that comes through in some of the stories. One of the most interesting stories I've ever read was one where Thor is talking to Captain America and he goes, you know, uh, sometimes when I come back, I'm just so glad that you're all still here. Like, I, I have no idea how much time is passes when I leave and go back to Asgard. Time is different there. And when I come here, I'm worried you won't be here anymore that someday I'll come back and you'll all have been dead for, for centuries. This, cause this has happened to me before I've, I've left to, to pursue, you know, my duties in Asgard. And when I came back, you know, hundreds of years had passed and everybody I knew and loved was gone. And that's just, there's a, there's a, a perspective difference. That's as important as anything to do with like raw power. Um, if I were creating a, you know, a pantheon of gods, I would think about that. I think about what is, why do we have gods? If especially let's assume for a moment, you know, in our day-to-day lives, we will never know, like never intellectually know about God, unless, you know, some of us have faith and faith is great. I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying faith and knowledge are two different things. So we live our lives, whatever our spiritual decisions are, whatever our religious beliefs are, we live our lives in a box where we'll never know as long as we're alive, what's going to happen. And therefore our religions are formed around certain ideas. There's certain things that, that come out of them. Uh, one of the ones that really comes to mind is you've played Dragon Age, right? Of course. Did you play Dragon Age Inquisition? Yep. 
Sure did. The revel the revelations about the the gods of the of the elves and 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 who Solus was. I mean, obviously, Solus isn't a god. Like you, you can talk to him, you can see him. He's mortal. He's fallible. But at the same time, he is the fir- the person that his people you know call the Dread Wolf. He is that being. He did that thing that is so monumental and unthinkable. You know that he created the vo- the veil and sundered like the spirit realm from the mortal realm. He did that. So in a way, his claim to godhood is pretty valid. You know. Like he did the thing. This thing happened because he decided it should. So you have to think about what makes someone a god. Yeah, and I know? think that that's the root of the question because, and the thing is, is there is no singular answer, right? And then no, I've, no, it depends entirely on the context of what you're in. Like I mentioned, Dark Side, Dark Side's a god, but well, you know, it's I mean, different than say Thor. But I mean, let's talk about let's talk about DC Comics for a moment too, like. Even contained within, if you go no further than the DC universe, the DC universe has actual born gods. You're, you mentioned or, or gods or, or beings that are so powerful that they might as well be gods. You mentioned Darkseid. There's also Metron, right? Metron is part of that that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zeus exists in that in the DC universe as yeah. well as the Marvel universe. Uh, but he is the actual God of, of, of that pantheon Trigon, who is not necessarily technically a God, but a demonic ruler of uh, the Underrealms, but still is on power comparable to the others is often worshiped as a God. Uh, you have Morpheus. Yeah, right. Yeah, you've got Trigon and Necron. And Necron. You have you've m- got others too. And you've got, you just, you were mentioning Morpheus. You've got Morpheus and all the other Endless. And then you've got the Presence. Yep. I was going to say, you got the Presence. You also have Wonder Woman, who is at this point a god. Well, um, a demigod. Well, demigod. Um, and then you also have rules around that, which seem to shift. There was a version of, uh, I want to say it was Dark Knight's Metal. Uh, where Bruce Wayne killed Ares and took the place as the god of war because oh yeah one of the alternate Bruce Waynes in that yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean it's the rules shift in, depending on context even within framework of its own universe and if you I think- look at even even an actual historical religious thought even in actual mythology the emperors of Rome were all considered to become deified upon death mm-hmm. they got their own cults people prayed to them. Now, keep in mind that the way Romans viewed religion was different, but they still, they believed that they were divine. Not while they were alive, not while they were emperor. While they were emperor, they were just men. But if they died naturally and their cult was established, they were then considered to be gods. Yep. Um, So apotheosis, we have a word for it. We have apotheosis. That word means to become a god. So the very fact that we've got a word for it means that it's something humans have been thinking about for a very long time. Agreed. Uh, uh, going back to, I want to go back to what you just mentioned because I, I think there's more to bring out of it. Let's talk about Spider-Man. Yeah. Okay. Um, the spider totem thing that that J. Michael Straczynski brought in, a lot of people thought it was dumb, and I understand why they thought it was dumb. But it it does one thing really well: is it takes Spider-Man out of the realm of purely I am an accident, and therefore it's unique to me and turns it into something that anybody could be involved with, which is a big part of the appeal of Spider-Man. From the beginning, Stan Lee mentioned that the reason Spider-Man spoke to so many people was because he could be anybody under that mask. Yep. And they've kind of codified it with like Miles Morales and so forth. So I, at this point, having 
brought this hot potato of a topic up. I'm going to throw it at Joe and see what he has to say. <laughs> so the spider tone has always been an interesting thing for me because I, I am personally in the camp of somebody who enjoys it uh, because it also broadens sort of the universe surrounding Spider-Man. There's always been the discussion around that character of why are they so powerful? Why could he stick to a surface and not be pulled off of it by the Hulk? Why did the Beyonder once say that he has limitless potential, but he limits himself and therefore can never reach his full potential. And that's probably for the best. Um, and they start, they started doing this, this whole thing where the spider totem is a multiversal supernatural uh, ent- entities that were created by the goddess Neith, if I remember correctly. Um, and it, harkens back to the web of life and destiny where the great weaver, the gatekeeper, the other, the bride, the scion and the pattern maker, uh, as well as others are sort of aspects of this totem made manifest. Uh, and they can exist anywhere in the multiverse in some case, multiple forms of them in the multiverse, uh, during the inheritance run, we actually see, uh, the spider totems and people of the spider totem being hunted, uh, by the inheritors, uh, which was a whole other role of that. Uh, but then there was this concept of the great totems. The great totems were these things that maintain the web of destiny and life. And so technically Peter falls, the, the totem of Spider-Man falls into that role where they must exist. Um, it's an interesting concept. I could talk about this for probably a couple hours by itself uh, because it has no. come up multiple times, yeah. but please go ahead. I just I'm saying the reason I brought it up was partially because I, I like Joe getting nerdy about Spider-Man. <laughs> um, but also because you would not think of Spider-Man as a God, like you, to look at him, you know, sure. You know, strong has superpowers and all that, but still street level quippy, but he fits the trickster archetype better than any character in Marvel, including Loki, who is an actual trickster God. Or of course, in this context, it's called the other, but yes. Yeah. But that concept I'm not even talking about the, the the inheritor stuff per se. That's just the in-universe rationale for this. In terms of his storytelling role, Spider-Man resembles nobody quite so much as a fusion of Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Yeah. He's like both characters and one person. Um, he's He's got the Parker luck. He's, you know, he has misfortune in his life. He doesn't always know what to do or how to get through it. But he also has that manic guise he puts on and spiders are really great for this because spiders, the web archetype, the web making archetype is a thing that is created. It is a pattern. It has this, you know, vast, you know, symmetry to it, which underlies that whole concept of being the yin and yang and one being. Uh, if you look at the stuff they've, they've done with Spider-Man over the years, one of my favorite stories of all time is a Spider-Man story uh, where Fire Lord, the Herald of Galactus comes to earth and he's angry about something. And Spider-Man just tries to, you know, he's the only one around for some reason and tries to get him to just calm down. And Fire Lord takes offense to it and begins attacking him. And the more Spider-Man tries to defuse the situation, the more aggressive and angry Fire Lord becomes. Until finally, Spider-Man has done everything to keep this dude away from people, done everything to keep him from hurting people, and he just snaps. And he beats up a Herald of Galactus by himself. A galactic being that had once stood before the might of even Thanos. Yeah, this is a guy. This is a guy who's on the Silver Surfer level of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Silver Surfer has done things like wave his hand and take the Hulk out, like in just with one hand wave. And Spider-Man just unloads on this guy and takes him down. Now, 
Joe just mentioned Thanos. Spider-Man has beaten Thanos. Multiple times. Yeah, but by himself, after everybody mm-hmm. else went down, there's a there's a classic story that basically presages the Infinity Gauntlet, uh, where Thanos is getting his hands on a cosmic cube. And a cosmic cube is the Tesseract from the movies. You know what it is. In the comics, they're not quite the same, but the cosmic cube can basically grant you anything you can think of. The downside is you have to be able to think of it mm-hmm. and keep thinking of it while you've got it in your hand. Thanos grabbed it and used it to make himself God. Capital G God. His face is up in the sky and the stars. Problem is that the cube was still on the ground in his hand. Now, he'd taken everybody else out, but Spider-Man has Spider-Sense. And Spider-Man's Spider-Sense is terrifyingly accurate. Like, if you ever stop and think about Spider-Man... Specifically Spider-Man's Peter Spider-Man's Parker, because not all of the, not yeah. all the Spider-Men yeah. have uh, spider Not all of them have it, but Peter Parker does. Peter's Spider-Sense is terrifyingly accurate. It's one of the most accurate precognitions in existence. Uh, it, it's also kind of hard to read because it just goes, ah, you know, it's just something yelling in the back of your head, bad. But once you know how to use it, you can avoid almost anything with it. Combining all of his other abilities with it, he successfully avoided Thanos' strike. Thanos turned himself into God, but left his body behind with a cube in his hand. So Spider-Man just went over and took the cube out of his hand and could successfully wish Thanos back mm-hmm. into his body and beat. He's smart enough to do that and strong-willed enough to make it work. There's This is a character that on the face level of it is kind of a gawpy, annoying teenager, but who might actually be a god. Which is why like that always stuck with me as a kid before they, they codified it was during the Secret Wars, during the original Secret Wars, when the Beyonder, a cosmic godlike entity, was commenting specifically to another god about Peter about spider-man and sort of laying the groundwork for this in the 70s no it was or the, 80s late 80s late 80s, 80s. Yeah. don't don't do that to yeah, me. yeah sorry the lady but the late 80s like we're talking we're we're talking like two years before crisis on infinite earths came out yeah regardless though the point is that comics do this thing where all forms of godhood exist even things that aren't traditionally a god a being that has essentially always existed at that level of power can be created. We've seen Thor inherit further power as Thor takes on the mantle of Odin uh, and becomes the all father. Uh, we've seen uh, Jane, Jane Foster become Thor adopt, basically adopt into Godhood. Uh, we've seen this from multiple other locations. It's wide and varied. And there's, there's a story coming out now in comics uh and I do want to talk about other media, but in comics right now, there's a story called Judgment Day coming out, which is the X-Men, Eternals, and Avengers crossover. In that storyline, some of the Eternals have decided we're going to just kill all the mutants. But others of the Eternals are like, nope, this is a bad idea. And in order to stop the other Eternals, they join, turn to the Avengers, and they're going to make a new Celestial. Mm-hmm. They're going to make a new Celestial. And Celestials are, if you you know what the Celestials are, if you watch any of the Marvel stuff or the round thing, it's basically the same thing. They're going to make a new one, a brand new one. The Celestials are so powerful that one of them took out the entirety of Earth's deities when they came to, and they tried to stop them from interfering with Earth. And they're just making a new one. And the best part is they're patterning it after Tony Stark because Tony Stark linked to a Celestial at one point, and so his nervous system still has sympathetic echoes. So it's going to have Tony Stark as its mental power, its mental pattern. Well, because you know the Avengers currently live in a, a they, celestial. Yeah, they live. Yeah, so I'm just imagine that's the celestial they're turning into. They're they're making a new one out of that one. So yeah, it's that kind of stuff happens. Uh, 
But let's for a minute. I want to move us to a video game. But okay. you had a thing to say, so why don't you do the thing you were going to say? I was actually going to move us to tabletop role playing games. But if we're going to do role, uh, if we're going to do video games, absolutely. I feel like there's one video game we should talk about here. Go for it. God of War. Yeah. Okay. Because God of War, you see everything we're talking about. You're seeing gods die. You're seeing people rise to godhood. You're seeing people get knocked down from godhood to get back up and get up to godhood again. You're seeing the Titans, who are technically not gods, but are the parents and you know lovers of the gods and are where the gods come from. Um, the word Titans, it's interesting, so the word Titans in Greek mythology, the original word that, that we, we anglicize as Titans, means the strainers. And it's because they overthrew their father. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uranos, Kronos, and Rhea... Uh, formed the titans chronos castrated his father uranos as he came down to mate with gaia the earth and threw him down he was no longer king of the of king of, of heaven he it became chronos's job and that's why the titans were called the strainers because they were usurpers and the olympians are of of course also usurpers because they do the exact same thing to chronos because that was uranus's curse to chronos was that he'll have the exact same thing happen to him um and because the greeks love this kind of thing hearing that pro- prophecy Uranus didn't decide, well, I'll be nice to my kids. He decided, I'll eat all my kids. That'll stop that. And it didn't, it obviously. But God of War takes those themes of, of parents and children and uses its divine, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, divine panoply, its divine backstory to, to showcase those very real normal themes, which is what mythology has always been. And I, and I think the most recent version, the most recent game to come out in the series really did that the best, right? Like it really showcased uh, what that was. Um, well, yeah, because at first, let's be honest, the original games were basically an excuse to watch a guy scream and kill and rip things in half. 100%. Um, but with the current one went into that sort of complex uh, structure of godhood, uh, dealing mainly with the Norse uh, and Greek gods, but uh, mostly the Norse gods at this point but the complicated interplay of that, the fallibility of it. And the interesting thing to me, uh, what Matt's pointing out is that sort of like the rearing into godhood, right? Um, I spoiler warning for a game that came out several years ago at this point. Um, but you know, Kratos has a son in this game and because he's a God, his kid is also going to be a god. He's going to inherit at least a portion of that divinity, depending on who his wife or or, or uh, mate was. And then we come to find out that in this particular retelling of the Greek pantheon, he is what gave, he is the father of Loki. That is the big twist. But Loki, throughout most of that first game, doesn't realize he's a god. He doesn't even know he's Loki yet. He only knows himself as Atreus, a Greek name. Yeah, the name Loki is the name his mother would have given him. Which we find out at the end, which is sort of the big thing. But it's it's this interesting thing where he doesn't realize he's a god. Then he's told that he's a god, reacts very, very, very poorly to it, uh, and then has to be brought back down to a, a, a more human level. Because that's sort of how that pantheon and that storyline that story work is godhood is tempered by humanity. Or- and there's that the, the really great exchange between the two that, that I think Joe is talking about is when after an entire game of being non-communicative and and surly because that's you know, it's it's Kratos I mean and he's played by Christopher Judge in this game and he does an amazing job of it but after an entire game of that he finally snaps and instead of screaming at his son and bullying him just tells him like, oh, yeah that was my father I killed him 
And he's like, is that just what it is? Is that, you know, sons killing fathers? He goes, I don't know, but we can be better. Mm -hmm. We can choose what kind of gods we are. And that, you know, that is, I think, a big part of what the divinity in that storyline is for. It's, it's to illustrate these things that are just as true when you're talking to, you know, you talking to, say, your little brother or your kid now. You may not be a god, but you're still, there's a lot of negative aspects to life, to, to being human, to being a man to, or a woman in our society. And you can look at those things and be dragged under by them, or you can say, no, we can choose who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this actually ties back to the Spider-Man thing, too. Because a lot of the, the spider totem thing is really just a way to explain that this is not something people are born to. It's something that chooses them, yes, but they, it's also something they choose. You know, Miles doesn't have to put on the mask and go out and do that. Uh, he's, he's not Peter Parker. He doesn't have the psychological compulsion to do it because he feels responsible for the death of his uncle. He does it because he thinks it's the right thing to do. That he, you know, because that the message of with great power comes great responsibility is one that works for anybody. And, it, you know, P- Peter learned it one way, but it's part of this whole thing. And it is absolutely something that you see with other characters. Agreed. Um, and it's another another interesting thing. Like if you haven't played it yet uh, for this particular exchange uh, to really kind of get the idea behind it and sort of the, the passing of the mantle, play the Spider-Man uh, game that originally from, from insomniac games, go ahead and play it. It's on PC now it's worth it. Um, but I want to move away from video games for a moment and in comic books and talk specifically about tabletop role-playing games, at least for a little while, because each game that exists sort of has its own way of dealing with divinity, uh, and how gods exist and die and are reborn or replaced. I'm going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons specifically at first because I think it's the most ubiquitous or well-known as far as what's out there as available to players. And I think will probably resonate to a broader audience. There are a couple of very simple concepts that have been around for a while, and I don't know if they've been around for the entire time. I'd have to go back and reread books that predate my, my birth. Um, but gods can die in Dungeons and Dragons in the way their universes are set up. Mm-hmm. A god can die and their body doesn't, it, it, a physical form is projected into the astral sea essentially and becomes a landmass there, becomes a sleeping husk. Their divine spark can then be taken over by another being that can assume their portfolio or it could be replaced by somebody else. Another god absorbs that portfolio. There is a natural order to how folks can actually be raised to godhood as it is described that the original gods that existed were all once mortal, uh, that did great deeds of heroism uh, and were worshipped by their people as if they were gods and thus became gods, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, and uh, go one ahead. thing, while Joe's talking about this, uh, he said we were getting away from video games, but the entire plot to Baldur's Gate 2 is about this. You know, and it's, it literally takes you to the husk in the astral sea of one of a dead God, the, the God Baal, Lord of murder, where your character ultimately decides, do I supplant him? Do I absorb his divine essence and become his replacement? Do I allow it to pass into the cosmos and for somebody else to effectively get it at some point in the future? Or do I turn it into something else? And 
that's something that's still in the game to a degree. I mean, one of the most famous examples of a character pulling this off is Vecna. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, I just, it's, you know, Vecna started off as a lich. He started off, in fact, originally as a wizard who didn't want to die. And so he became a lich. And as part of his whole phylactery deal, he created his, his hand and his eye, which eventually became so powerful in their own right that they became artifacts. Vecna became so powerful that one of his lieutenants, his weapon became an artifact because it was devoted to killing him. Like it's the sort of cause, if you've ever heard of it, it was wielded by his vampire lieutenant cause, who is the reason he got killed the first time. Uh, cause turned against Vecna and struck him down from behind. And that act of betrayal made the sword an artifact. That's, that's what the deal Vecna was. That's a Lord of secrets and mysteries though. Vecna keeps coming back because you know, it, that's the nature of a secret. You know, you, you can't really, if a secret's a secret, it, it doesn't really go away. Uh, there's always more things to find out, more, more mysteries to plunder and all that. And there's always going to be hints of it, which is like, yeah. we're, we have a candle keep game, or at least we had a candle keep game that was going, I think Liz is still running it occasionally question mark. Just um, in a while, just because life has been too chaotic, but there's a lot of things where like, that's a repository of information that exists as sort of like a central hub that may have whispers and rumors of divine powers or of Vecna or whatever the case is. Um, but D and D has always, I wish to say always, I believe it was codified in like third or 3.5 where they actually like ranked out divine power, actually ranked out how portfolios work and things like that. And well, they did, yeah, some of that was from second edition and some of that goes all the way back to the, uh, original days and demigods. That's it, true. And- and then there's the basic sets of mortal immortals rules and the immortals rules are even more complicated, but yeah, basically. Yes. I agree. Okay. And the way that they rank them is you have your quasi deities or hero deities. These are beings that are mortal, uh, but usually cannot grant spells or, or have worship or grant spells to their worshipers. You have demigods who are the weakest of the divine, uh, the de- actual true divine pantheon. They're able to grant spells and perform a few deeds that are beyond mortal limits. Uh, technically like, Archfey follows somewhere in between demigods and lesser deities. Uh, lesser deities are entities who perform more powerful deeds than demigods can uh, and have a more refined portfolio as well as more followers. You have intermediate, which are uh, they control larger godly realms uh, than demigods or lesser gods, but less than greater deities, which are typically the ones that have millions of mortal worshipers. They command like a certain respect among even other deities and some of these greater deities even rule over other pantheons. Uh, this is when you start getting into like the, the elven pantheons, the dwarven pantheons, the human pantheons, uh, and when they have specific portfolios of who they worship for what and how they interact with each other. And then there's something that I don't think we've actually seen in 5th edition yet, which is over deities. Um, yeah, like AO. We haven't seen him. Yeah, which are these are entities that are beyond the understanding of mortal knowledge. Uh, nobody knows how they became over deities. If they were gods that just ascended beyond greater, uh, greater deities or whatever the case is, uh, but they've essentially always existed. So it's, it's an interesting uh, look as far as, as godhood in a tabletop setting is concerned. And I've always found it fascinating um, in a game that I've recently played in where it, we, for five years, we were chasing a, a thread of a story arc involving the goddess of fate, in this case, Istis. We were able to murder Istis and reignite the spark of the god that Istis had killed and taken the place in the goddess of uh, the pantheon of fate um, because D&D had that sort of codified. And it was interesting because it was one of those surreal experiences 
where at that point, our characters kill the God, our player characters. If we can kill a God, how far removed from Godhood are we at that point? So, and I'm going to shut up and let Matt talk for a while. I was hoping it'd take a little longer so I could see if I actually got anything off this boss. Um, yeah, uh, you got me so interested in Godhood that I went and jumped on Alpha and Tomb of Sargeras because Sargeras has got me thinking about that idea of if you can kill a god, does that make you a god? Um, which does take me then to Shadowrun and uh, specifically not just Shadowrun, but Earthdawn. Mm. Earthdawn and Shadowrun are interesting concepts because in the, they're not currently put, published by the same company. Um, they're actually published by two different companies. I don't know the one of them is a European company, I think Catalyst, although they might have lost the rights by now. Uh, who's publishing Shadowrun nowadays? Uh, Shadowrun still Catalyst. Okay. Um, one of the interesting things about the Shadowrun world is that it is the like I think it's the sixth world. Yes. Uh, it's the the realm, the world that we're living in into up until the time of the Great Ghost Dance in Shadowrun. And I, I don't. It would take too long to explain all the lore of Shadowrun, but. The world up until the return of magic was the fifth world and the end of the fifth world and the beginning of the sixth world is when magic returns and the dragons wake up and people who the, with a stronger tradition of magical abilities in their culture got the magic back and used it and changed the face of the earth. Or those that have, for lack of a better term, genetic dissension from the original fantasy races began to mutate as well. Yeah. The goblinization and so forth. Um, the people turned into elves and so forth. As a result of all this, one of the dragons was a, a dragon named Dunkelzon, uh, extremely powerful, extremely wise, and a survivor of the fourth world. The fourth world is the time of Earthdawn. And Earthdawn is the fourth world because the third world that preceded it was killed by things called horrors. And the horrors are like, they're kind of like Lovecraftian nightmare things. They're, so they're sort of like the old gods from from Warcraft or what have you. But they're literally uh, arcanivores. They eat magic. Yep. And as a result, the more magic that exists in a world, the more drawn to that world horrors are. And the horrors have very specific limitations. They, for instance, horrors cannot do true art. They cannot express things creatively. If If a... Horror it possesses a human body and is using that body, and that that human body is, say, an, an artist at sword combat. The horror cannot replicate their artistry. All their strikes will be killing strikes. Nothing. There will never be any flourishes. There will never be anything creative about it. They will always. They'll be as good at sword fighting as they were, but none of the art will be there anymore. And that's because. That's that's something they eat. They eat magic. They eat creativity. They they can't produce it. If they could produce it for themselves, they wouldn't need to come eat entire worlds. In order to live through the horrors, the last time the peoples of the third world created these like underground cairns and sealed them off, and and the, the horrors couldn't get through the walls to get in. Sometimes they did, and they would kill everybody. But as a result, the magic level then drops and drops and drops. And eventually the world doesn't have enough magic to sustain the horrors and they leave. Earthdawn, there's a, re- for some reason, around 72,000 years ago, the magic stops dropping at a point where you can still use magic, but not enough that the horrors can just wander around freely. They have to be called into the world and fed with direct magic. So there's this period of time that Dunkazan was alive for where he saw the horrors firsthand and knew what they were. And so when the sixth world starts, Dunkelzon realizes, oh, our magic is just going to keep going up and up and up and up, and they'll come back. And these people are not freaking ready for this. 
They have no way of dealing with it. Throughout his storyline, Donkazan puts himself into position where he becomes elected the president of the UCAS, the United Canadian and American States, which is kind of like the the night the the uh, I want to say the successor to the United States. Kinda, because uh, most of most of the United States went back to the native people at this time. I'd say uh, half, not most, half seventy five percent. No man, they they really didn't get anything past the Mississippi, and but they did get Mexico. So, you know, but but regardless. He, since he knows what's coming, he deliberately gets himself elected president and then has himself killed. Like he, he assassinates himself. And when he does this, he makes a hole in the area where he's killed that is essentially a funnel that drains magic out of the world of Shadowrun. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, keeps the level from getting to the point where the horrors can come in. And he is in that hole, essentially keeping it open in the astral plane. Which essentially means he is the guardian now of that entire world. In his death, he has essentially gone through an apotheosis. He's become a god. He's very a specific god. He's the god of keeping horrible Lovecraftian monsters from coming back and eating everything. But in a way, he's a god now. He can't die. He can't even really be affected by anything. You can't touch him because he's literally in a vortex of magical power. For some reason, I remember that he was only god for 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's- <laughs> I think that actually is possibly a reference to the game as well, though. I think so, too. Um, yeah, I think they actually do that. But it's one of those really interesting things, and it's it's not the first time they did that. One of my favorite adventures from Shadowrun, did you ever do the one with Harlequin? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the Harlequin adventure was one of my favorites. And that Harlequin and Aeron are the first, are also survivors of that incredibly distant past. They've actually lived right through to the modern day as elves, even as the magic level dropped. And and then as it began coming up, they lived through all that. So they, they too understood that the world was fragile and things were going to happen. They had very different opinions on how to deal with that, but they both re- knew it was going to happen. Shadowrun has that interesting concept of like, you know, at what point have you lived long enough and seen enough and done enough to essentially be a god? Mm-hmm. Like, doesn't either Harlequin or Aaron blows up Mount St. Helens again? I think it's Harlequin. Yeah. And, and that's like the kind of thing they can do. You know, so it is Shadowrun's one of the more interesting ones, in my opinion, in terms of like, you know, godhood and the the nature of divinity and how one would pursue it in that world. Um, uh, you got another one you want to talk about before we go or I was going to say, I want to bring it back to, to Warcraft for uh, just sort of to close this out. This is one of the things that I think is fascinating coming back to like World of Warcraft in general is when it was first conceived, it had a very clear delineation of godhood. Uh, it had heavens and hells very similar to uh, a Diablo-esque split. It, it, there was no Titans. There was no light. Uh, it just was essentially God and then the devil. Um, it wasn't called that, but that's essentially what it was. And then it has evolved over time to be much more loose in its interpretation of what a deity is or what a, or what even is considered a deity because Again, we have priests, and those priests worship the light, but the light itself is not a deity, not in a traditional sense. We talk about how the light can be wielded, it will it wielded, it will fill uh, whoever calls to it and is worthy of holding it, uh, even throughout undeath. Uh, so it doesn't really have a conscious, like, I don't want to say it doesn't have a will, but it doesn't really seem to be a sentient creation or being like you would normally ascribe to a god, but it absolutely can do things like raise the dead, 
protect against uh, uh, insurmountable odds, heal the most grievous of wounds, cure the worst diseases. It can do all these things that we would classify somebody as a god could do, but isn't traditionally a god. Um, you have the, the we talked about the Titans. They're incredibly powerful beings that can literally shape worlds and have helped shape the universe that we know, uh, at least as much as we know of it. But again, are they gods or do they just have that sort of power? And that's what I kind of like about Warcraft is the term God aside from old gods doesn't really get thrown around. And in the case of old gods, we call them that because their minions call them that because that's what their subjects called them. So we sort of accepted that designation, even when the Pantheon is dealing with it, even when mother is in the laboratory trying to experiment and accidentally creating a God, an old God, they call them old gods. They don't call them void entities. God doesn't carry the same connotation in Warcraft. And I think that's sort of the important distinction in how they handle that. You can have sufficient, I was going to say sufficiently powerful beings can do incredibly crazy, heroic and special things, but aren't necessarily worshiped as gods. I mean, look at the jailer himself. The jailer doesn't claim godhood. Nope. At no point does the jailer say, I am a god, nor, nor does the jailer think, call the first ones gods. I, I wanted to actually really briefly tie upon one thing I think is really important when thinking about, say, the Titans or other things like the Titans in Warcraft, in that there's a direct line of descent from Jack Kirby to the guys who were designing Warcraft back in the 90s. And that they were like, it's, you're talking about guys like Chris Metzen and um samwise didier were comic book fans and they they were artists who drew in in a style very much inspired by the comic books they'd read and it's clear when you go to Oldowar and look around it's even it's like a jack kirby drawing it's kirby's eternals it's kirby's celestials it's it's kirby's you know fourth world stories that's very much a part of of the dna of the titans and the things like them in the warcraft universe the, the whole deal with Sargeras, there's a direct line of descent from Darkseid to Sargeras. Like, you can you can see it. Mm-hmm. You can look at it and, and say, oh, that's where that came from. And it's not a ripoff. It's not the same story. But it's just that idea of, you know, beings like Algalon, who show up in, in uh, you know, the, the quote-unquote Herald of the Titans, make these cosmic pronouncements. That's the kind of thing we're looking at. So... I, I think there's definitely a, te- a tendency in Warcraft to avoid, it, it doesn't matter what you call them. What matters is what they're doing. And there's nothing in Warcraft that you cannot ultimately solve with like between nine to 23 other people. You know what I mean? Like it's just part of the nature of the game is that these beings can be defeated. There's always a way to stop them. There, there's never anything that you can't, get a bunch of mortals together and stop. Even if it does seem impossible because it's insanely powerful, there's a way to do it. And so the, the idea of a God in Warcraft is much, it's much more nebulous on purpose. The once they become something, we know what it is. They're much less terrifying. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And at this point we've, we've had, we tend to find out or at least know about a lot when it comes to those types of beings, it's generally our job as player characters to do exactly that. We'll go through. We will like we've we fought a reawakened avatar of Sargeras. 
We fought Argus. We've fought the Jailer. We have fought old gods. We have fought huge cosmic entities that by all stretch of the imagination should be wiping the floor with us. However, we learned about them beforehand. Once they're knowable, they're handleable. You can take care of it. And that's one thing that I do appreciate about the Warcraft universe is that so far, nothing has been presented that is beyond our grasp. Technically, not even death at this point, because we just learned a whole lot about that over the last, well, now we know two years in game. So there's a lot, a lot to think about there. And I, I, the topic of divinity has always been interesting in media because again, everybody has their own way of doing it. Everyone like Joe Joe mentioned, Joe mentioned uh, the, you know, um, Morpheus from the, the uh, Sandman storylines and the endless and their relationships to death and other concepts uh, in that there's, there's this, you know, there's been so many different kinds of TV shows and movies that have dealt with this kind of thing that there's no way we could touch upon all of it. Um, if you're going to mention like the Percy Jackson books or mm-hmm. um, Tolkien, Tolkien's vast mythology. And the fact that, you know, when you're looking at Tolkien, Sauron isn't even the first big evil Lord. He's the first evil Lord's Lieutenant, mm-hmm. uh, you know? So there's, there's a lot. Just the the mythology behind the Lord of the Rings stuff is. Try to a read the Silmarillion sometime, and it's it's thick. <laughs> yeah, well, try and read the actual Elder Edda sometime. If you want to get confused? Also thick. Um. Yeah, but but yeah, there's there's a lot. This is a topic we could have been going on about for a much longer than we did. We didn't even touch upon like a lot of video games, like the Divinity series. Yep. The Divinity games are all about divinity, you know, and we didn't even get there. So yeah, there is a lot to this. We didn't even really plumb like we barely mentioned the 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 Loa and the Wild Gods and the the you know the ones from Pandaria, the the August Celestials, oh, yep, who are all related. They're all basically the same kind of thing. Um, but again, so yeah, they're there's, they're there's insanely a- powerful beings that are capable of amazing feats, but not unkillable, right? And they're not omniscient either. They know a lot, just not everything. It's yeah, heck, their, their cosmos is actually, we've just found out that their cosmos is actually designed around the idea that they will die. Yep. And come back. So yeah. There's, Except there's Ursoc, a, they did my board dirty. Anyway. <laughs> I think um, Ursoc's coming back at some point. I hope. Um, but it's an interesting concept and it's actually one that I'm curious if you out there, our listeners have an opinion on, if you feel that there's a, a story, a book or a comic, a movie, a TV show or a video game that you feel handles divinity in a gr- in a good way, like or or in a way that fascinates you, uh, or something that you think is well done. I'd be interested to hear about that. Be sure to let us know. Um, do you have anything to to add before I close out? I'm going to say this because we talked about Marvel for a while. Marvel has so many different things that are kind of gods or like gods or more powerful than gods or whatever. That if you stop and actually look at it all, it's it's ridiculous and it goes up and down. Uh, there's beings that are so amazingly powerful that they're more powerful than the divine embodiment of the entire universe. So yeah, th- there's a lot out there in that, on that topic. But if you have a topic that you'd love us to cover, uh, be sure to go ahead and send it in. You can send it to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify what show it's for. Don't forget. We have three of them. Uh, don't make us fight over it. I'm far too injured to be fighting Matt at this point. It's just not fair. Uh, it's if, really not fair for anybody to have to fight me because I cheat. I cheat a lot. That's fair. <laughs> uh, you can go ahead and also send them in our, our Discord server. We do have our Patreon Q and podcast questions. 
uh, channel for our Patreon supporters. We give you first billing. Uh, we do also have our Q and podcast questions channel if you can't support us on Patreon. But as a our outro will always remind you, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions of those Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast setting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. So thank you very much, folks. We'll see you next week.